Well, I want to welcome you here this morning as well. I'm Pastor Reg Taves, the transitional lead pastor here at uh, Forest Grove Community Church. So welcome those of you who are here at Attridge. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, You went from summer last weekend to winter this weekend. How did you like the transition? A little fast for some of you. You're still wearing your shorts and wondering what happened. Uh, This is the wonderful thing about winter in Saskatchewan. Uh, And I appreciate it. It's the change of season. Just is really hard when it's so abrupt. Uh, But I'm glad to see you here this morning. And those of you who are online, I would expect that our online engagement is going to be heavier this week because there's less of you here this morning. Uh, So it's great that you're here, that you got here safely. And uh, we pray too that you get home uh, safely as well. I just do want to give a shout out to the Christmas uh, boxes Uh, It's something that we did with our kids years and years and years ago, and we would take them shopping. And actually, I found I hated it because they would beg me for everything that we wanted to buy and put in the box and say, well, well, this should be mine. No, no, you have to give this. We're going to give this to somebody else. And our daughter is now doing that with our grandkids. So I just want to also let you know, if you're my age or you don't have kids, there's a really simple way to do this. It's super lazy. You go on their website... And you say, I want to fill a box, and you just pay whatever, that, whatever it is. Somebody will know how much it is. It used to be like $25 or $30, and that was everything. So that's what we do now is we just go online, put in our credit card, pay for two or three boxes, and it's done, and somebody else actually gets to buy it and pack the box and look after all that good stuff for you. So that's just an aside, but I encourage you to do something uh, on that. It's just a wonderful opportunity. This week... Uh, We're also going to be celebrating Remembrance Day, and uh, I know for many of you it might be something that's sort of maybe in the back of your mind, or maybe you've been wearing your poppy already for a week or so. I always wonder, like, when are you supposed to put them on? When are you supposed to take them off? Uh, But I just want us to to take a moment, and uh, as those who are followers of Jesus, we want to pray for peace in our world. And I don't know, I'm watching the news, and maybe you're not. And I don't want to scare you off, but there's some serious stuff going on in our world today. And so we need to invite the God of the universe uh, to, uh, to speak into this and to act. And we also need to say, God, how do we be ready? And, and there's things that we're doing, right? We're Ukrainian people who are refugees are coming to our country. And we're welcoming them with open arms. It's something that we can do. So would you join with me as we pray together? And I'm going to invite you to stand again. I know it's a bit of up and down, but this morning, would you stand with me and let's just pray and maybe you just reach out a hand and say, Lord, this is my prayer as well as Pastor Reg prays this prayer. Father of all, remember your holy promise and look with love on all your people living and departed. On this day, we especially ask that you would hold forever all who have suffered during war and those who are suffering right now during war in our world. Those who return scarred by warfare and those who are being scarred even now. Those who wait anxiously at home and those who return wounded and disillusioned. Those who mourned and those communities that were diminished and suffered loss and are suffering loss even today. Remember too, those who acted with kindly compassion those who bravely risked their own lives for their comrades, and those who in the aftermath of war worked tirelessly for a more peaceful world. 
And as you remember them, Lord, remember us. Grant us peace in our time. The longing for the day when the people of every language, race, and nation will be brought into the unity of Christ's kingdom. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're continuing with our series in the book of Acts, and we're looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 16 this morning. And as we look at this particular text, I don't know if you had a chance to read through it, but it can actually be quite a challenging text to read. And so it, it, is, it is difficult and it's challenging. And I actually told some of the other staff who preach, I said, I didn't give this text to anybody else. Uh, I purposely chose to take this text myself because I can, this can go in a lot of different, de- de- uh, different uh, directions. But I want to start this morning by just talking about some of the, the issues that this, this text raises for us. And one of them that I, I would point out, it's not the only one, but one of them is the issue of comparison. Now, do you ever find yourself comparing yourself to others? I think we, I, I would think we've all done that. Uh, I remember in school, it was, you would compare marks. You would say, what, what kind of grade did you get? Oh, I got this. And then you wouldn't say anything if they got better than you. And if you got better than somebody else, you'd say, oh, I got this. So, right? So you're comparing. You're trying to one-upmanship that takes place. The comparison is a cause of pain. It actually doesn't help us when we're comparing ourselves to each other. Now, I did a quick search, and I wouldn't tell you to go follow this person. I don't know enough about them. But Chatel Patel said this, and I think it's true. These negative vibes or feelings inside your heart that is churned up because you started comparing yourself with another person is called the pain of comparison. So we can compare all kinds of things. We can talk about, as I said, our, J, our grades. We can talk about our jobs. Uh, we can talk about our incomes. We can talk about the vacations we can take or can't take. There's all kinds of ways in which we can compare ourselves with each other. And I would suggest to you it's not helpful. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, because I believe that's what began to take place in the early church. So last Sunday, we finished with the example of sharing and caring that was the mark of the church. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we get this person, Joseph, who becomes known as the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And there's this power of sharing. In the book of Proverbs, verse eleven twenty-five, it says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. That would be a great verse for you to print out and put somewhere and look at all week. Generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. There's lots of opportunities for us to be doing exactly that in these days. When people share, it encourages others to share as well. Not in the spirit of competition, but helping to see what can be done together. When we go to that issue of comparison, we, we might go, well, I can't do what they can do. No, but you can do what you can do. And together, you can do more than what one or two people can do alone. So it's this working together. The church is beginning, as, we, as we're reading in the book of Acts, the church is beginning to come together and say, how do, we, how do we actually care for each other and how does that help us reach our world with the gospel? So this next section is a tough section to go through. 
But it would be, I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't teach tough texts. And this is just one of those. And so give me some grace this morning, and I'll give you some. As we go through this together, you go like, I just don't understand. And it's like, it's okay. You know that I actually shared this story this past week. I met with a friend of mine who lives in Chilliwack. And uh, we, he and I have traveled to Thailand together with a team, and we did work there. He is not a believer. But he's, he actually reached out to me and said, I miss our friendship. So this time when I was home, we were back, we were talking about things, and he loves to write poetry, and he's writing poetry, he's going to church. So he writes poetry about what he's experiencing in church. And I said to him, yeah, I'm having to teach this text, and I tell him the story that I'm going to read to you in just a minute. I tell him the story about how difficult it is. He said, wow, that sounds really fascinating. So he's leaning into it. So I hope this morning you're leaning into this and going, I may not understand this, or I may have questions about this. And I would say, that's great. If you have questions about this, that's a good thing. So this is a tough section. So what we, what, what, before we read the text, there's an opposition. We need to understand there is opposition to God's design for his world and for the church. Throughout Scripture, we see that there is someone in Scripture called Satan or the devil who is opposing God's work and undermining that work. And we're going to see this in Acts chapter 5 in a very clear, specific way. Now, I'll, I'll ruin the story for you, and I'll let you know that in the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. So, there's the spoiler alert. He wins. All right, let's read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So that's hearkening back to Joseph in verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at his apostles' feet. Let's pause there for just a sec. Not a problem with any of that so far. It's like, great, it's your money. You can do what you want with it. Whatever he had property, he sold it. Bring the money, some of it, all of it. That's not the issue here. All right? So he can do what he wants with it. This wasn't an expectation that every penny had to come back to the church. So let's read verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who bury your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pause there this morning, and let's unpack that. Some pretty interesting, difficult stuff that we're reading here. In some ways, as I read that, I'm like, I'm glad God doesn't do that today. Probably none of us would be here. 
But there's something that we need to learn from this and that God wanted this to be part of the text and part of the early church so that we would understand who God is and what he's thinking and what his design is in our world. So there's this power of opposition. There is opposition to the church and to the gospel. David Peterson says, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, and that's what we've been studying in the book of Acts, there were those who were, you know, uh, bringing the, the leaders and followers of Jesus and were arresting them and were holding them to trial and were telling them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, so that's the force from without. Satan's second act was to destroy it by falsehood from within. So Satan has more than one tactic that he uses in trying to destroy the church. So Satan is working to defeat the church, and we know that the power of God will triumph because he has with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's focus in on verses 3 to 10. The focus here is of the sin, and the most important part that you and I need to understand is that the sin isn't against the church but the sin is against God. You need to know that all sin, even when it affects other people, and sin affects people around us, ultimately is sin against God. And that actually, for me, and maybe for you, raises it to a whole other level. So I'm not just impacting somebody that I can see and touch and feel. It's actually impacting somebody that I can't and who I have declared my allegiance to as a follower of Jesus. So it's significant. I'll give you some examples. David, when he sinned, and he sinned greatly, taking another man's wife and then killing the, the husband, what did David's response when he was called out on it? said, I have sinned against, he didn't say Uriah, he didn't say Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned against God. Now, it impacted Uriah, it impacted Bathsheba. But ultimately, he understood that his sin was against God. And he says, against God only have I sinned. So what was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? I'll suggest to you, the sin started with that comparison. I'm sure there's a reason this text is put together. And I told you before that the chapter breaks are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we could read Joseph and then right to the next story of Ananias and Sapphira, and they could be linked right together. So we have this great story of Joseph, the Barnabas, the encourager, the one who sells and gives the money and people are cared for, and now Ananias and Sapphira go to do the same thing, and it's, it's a good thing, except that as they're looking at Barnabas, they're going, maybe Look at, look at him. Look at Everybody thinks he's awesome. Let's do the same thing. They'll think we're awesome too. We'll be those people of encouragement. So I believe the sin was of envy, and then it became a sin of lying. Because why have you chosen to lie against the Holy Spirit? Again, I, was, I was, will tell you that they had whatever they got for it. They could have said, we're giving you 80%. We're giving you 90%. We're giving you 50%. And that would not have been an issue. But they came and said, we're giving you 100% when it wasn't true. There was a falsehood there. There's another example in the Old Testament of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, where, the, the, where it says, but the Israelites were unfaithful 
In regard to the devoted things, Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now I share that because the sin that happens in the group affects the group, not just the individual. So we see it directly affecting Ananias and Sapphira, but we have to understand that when you look at that, it affects the whole community. So in Joshua chapter 7, it's affecting the nation of Israel. One person's sinfulness is affecting the nation. You can also look even further back to Adam and Eve. There's a parallel there, and you can look at it yourself. But it's in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, where their sin has impacted the rest of us for all eternity until Jesus returns. And we're living in this brokenness. Peterson, in his commentary, says that Ananias and Sapphira failed to discern that a deliberate act of deceit against the church was a sin against the Lord of the church. So as we read the text, it talks about Satan speaking into their life. But I also want to tell you that there's, there's an aspect here of personal responsibility. And even though Satan led them into this, they always needed to take personal responsibility. So even when you look at Adam and Eve, and Satan comes to Eve in the garden and tells her some things that aren't true, and she chooses to believe them and then does something, who's held responsible? Well, certainly the serpent, but also Eve and Adam. So there's a personal responsibility here for actions that were taken. In the same way, Peter, who denied Jesus meaning he lied about his relationship, yet Peter was restored. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells Peter this, and he uses his common name, Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Do you know that is Jesus' prayer for every single one of us? That our faith would not fail that we would remain strong. Now, as I look at this from very human eyes in Acts chapter 5, it seems like a very harsh punishment. And it is given as an example and a warning to the church of how God views sin. And we shouldn't take it lightly, and we shouldn't just brush over it, and we shouldn't say, God, you were unfair. We should say, what does it say to us today? That when we're living our lives, that we need to take personal responsibility for behaviors, words, attitudes, and actions that are ours. And we need to be those who are careful about what we put into our minds and our hearts. question I, I know that some of you and, and I will have is, how do we overcome sin? And I'm going to give you, just, there's lots we can do here. I'm just going to give you one little piece. And that is this, guard your heart. How do you overcome sin? It's called guard your heart. And I don't know about you, but there is a lot of stuff out there. Social media, uh, you know, we have computers in our hands that can go to all kinds of places and can make us envious, uh, can make us jealous, can make all kinds of sins well up within us. 
And so those are the things where I'm saying we need to learn to guard our hearts. And that happens when we guard our eyes and our ears and the places that we go on the internet and the places that we go in our world. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. If you wonder why as particular, you're bent on a particular action, you're thinking this is, this is an action I want to move toward, it's because there's something going on in your heart. It's an internal problem, not an external problem. And we need to deal with it internally, guarding our hearts above all else. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how do we guard our heart? We guard it by recognizing the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And peace is all about contentment. It's all about this is good. So as I read this particular text in Acts chapter 5, it makes me wonder, well, is this going to be the end of the church? Is this it? Like, okay, everything seemed to be going really well. Yes, there was outside opposition, but all of a sudden now there's this internal conflict, internal issue that's taking place in the church. Is this the end of the church? No. But it results in some different things taking place which should open our eyes to how God wants to use the church even today. So let's read a little bit further in this particular text. Let's look at verses uh, 11, which I read. But let's read 11 uh, to 13. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Wow, it's, it's almost like, what's taking place here? So there's this fear that seizes the church because they see that God is taking sin seriously, and so should they. But then God begins to use the church in a powerful way. Begins to use the church powerfully. So the church is God's agent that, in, in verses 11 to 13. And there's three things that I just want to point out about that uh, that I believe is not directly in the text, but is part of the church. And what, what you and I need to understand is that when we are together as a community of faith, God is present with us. God is present with us. Can you say that with me? God is present with us. He's here. So if you ever wonder, is God here? He's here. Not because of this building, but because God is in each of you who are followers of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, it's because you've been drawn by the Spirit of God. So God is present with us. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with one another and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So here's this issue of, of, of sin that takes place in the early church. And there's this example that's made so that the church goes, 
we are knowing that God is present with us and God is holy. And God calls us to be holy. Now, Hebrews 12, 14 is interesting because it says, make every effort. Now, where does that come from? That actually comes from the Holy Spirit. So we say, God, how do I live this way? You need to help me. So making every effort is making sure that I'm continuously asking the Spirit of God to lead and guide me in this. Make every effort. Now, does that mean, it, it, when I read that, it sounds like, well, it won't be perfect. Aren't you, doesn't that give you some, it gives me hope. Okay, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to make every effort to live in peace with everyone. So it's not just those in the church, with everyone, live at peace with everyone, and to be holy, to be like God, because God is holy. And where does that holiness come from? It's been what we sang this morning. It comes from Jesus, and we just say, keep pointing, Jesus, you're holy. I am not, but I live under your holiness, and I receive it from you. Second thing I want to point out is that the fellowship of the church the community of the church is sacred in God's eyes. God does not take this lightly, and neither should we. That we, this group of people that we're sitting with this morning, that you're watching online, that you participate with, this is sacred in God's eyes. Not necessarily in ours, but in God's. So it's certainly it's easy for us to criticize the church. And not to say that the things haven't been done in the name of Christ that have been wrong. Things have been, haven't been done in the name of the church that have been wrong. I, I, I totally understand that. But generally, it's not the church that hurts people. It's people that hurts, hurt people that are part of the church. And yes, we are a broken and sinful, but we're also redeemed. And so we, we lean into that our fellowship is sacred. We lean into this is important to God that we live out our faith. John writes in 1 John 1, 6 and 7, he says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, Jesus, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. So we choose to walk in light rather than in darkness. And it's that guarding our hearts. The fellowship of the church is sacred. Here is the way. Walk in the light. It's what we have together. And the sacrifice of Jesus for every single one of us provides the way. And that to me says that I offer grace as God offers grace to me. I offer grace to others. And that's something that as a church, every church, we all need to learn to offer grace to each other as God offers us grace. You see, the last thing I want to say out of this text is that sin breaks relationship with God first. It breaks relationship with God first. And then it also breaks relationship with others. So how do we live together? How, does, how do we do this uh, when we sin? 
Galatians 6.1 gives us the way. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person, how? Gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. That's why we live in community. It's why we don't do our faith by ourselves. I don't come to Jesus and say, well, I'm gonna, it's just Jesus and me. I'll never grow that way. It'll be stunted growth, if anything. But we need each other to walk together, to restore each other, to recognize and speak into each other's lives. So this is the work that the church has been called to be and do as the agents of God. Let's finish reading the last part of the text. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to believe used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more people, more and more women and, and men believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So we have this story of Ananias and Sapphira, and then the story continues on. And out of that, we see what God does, and there's the effect, I'd like to call this today, the effect of discipline. Discipline, you see, is not punishment. Discipline guides us to be who God created us to be. Even in Hebrews, it says, Christ Jesus learned the things through what he suffered. There was discipline that was taking place. If you play sports or if you watch sports, you know that great athletes have a certain wonderful natural ability, but they don't get to where they are simply by their natural ability. They hone their skills. They work at it. They get better. They, they, what it takes is discipline. They work out. They eat right. They listen to the coach. Those who choose not to do those things don't become elite, elite athletes. They just don't. It takes discipline. It's the same in the, in the church. It's going to take some discipline for us to live out these things, to say, I need to say no to things, and I need to say yes to things, and I need to know what are the right things to say yes to and what are the right things to say no to. So as we look at this effect of discipline, here's two effects. There's fear and response in verse 14. The early church continued to grow. So even though there was this sort of this weaning out, this example of this couple, it's like the church continued to grow. Were there some that said, no, I'm not interested? Yes. But there were so many more who kept saying yes. There was an understanding of God's purpose and guidance for them as a church. And the church began to understand that sin was always against God first and foremost. And that sin against God affected the whole church. And so God wouldn't just let it go. Now the church doesn't just let it go. We're called to hold each other accountable to love each other, to draw each other together, to learn to grow in our faith, and that can be challenging. Verse 15, it talks about healings and ongoing people coming to faith in Christ. 
The outcome of this discipline that God was providing the church is transformation. Healings are taking place. People are listening and responding to the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. It was a new life for them. John 14, 12, it says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, that's Jesus, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And we see here that people from the outskirts were bringing sick people into the city and were just putting them on the street, hoping that Peter's shadow would land on them as he walked by. And the text says, and they were all healed. Greater things were happening than even when Jesus was on earth. People were accepting the gospel, joining the church. When opposition comes and hardship takes place, the church continues to grow as it listens and acts to God's directions, even when we get it wrong. We stop and listen. Now what? Let me close quickly with this. God's holiness shows us our own weakness. It just does. And the power of the gospel is in the Spirit's ability and desire to bring freedom song that we sang this morning there's freedom in christ that's what the holy spirit wants to do in the church today and in our world today and that's what makes the church attractive not that we're perfect but that in our broken and sinfulness we come before god and say god you're the one who gives freedom i'm only going to find it here i'm not going to find it anywhere else it's only going to be here. So the question I would ask for, for you and I to grapple with today is what do you need to ask God to free you from and what do you need to ask him to free you to? So often it's like, free me from this. But I want to say, no, God, what do you want to give me in its place? So anytime God takes something away, he's going to replace it with something better. Now, we may not think it's better, but God knows it is. So what is it that you would ask God to free you from this morning? Or what is it that you need to place in your life as part of guarding your heart? That's like, I need freedom too. And finally, we need to call out to God for the church to be his agent of change. In us, we help each other. Transformation in Jesus comes through Jesus, but it comes through the body. And how do we be his agents of change in our world today? I want us to commit to pray for the giving of the Spirit to lead and guide us in this day and into the days into the future. Join with me as we pray. I'll call on the team to come up at this time. Father, we thank you that you are the one who leads us and guides us. Lord, even as we've read this text, it's hard and yet it's true that you have called us to be holy and we can't do it without you. And so this morning as your followers, and if, even if we're not your followers, we want to come to you and open our hands and our hearts and say, God, speak to us. Show us what we need to give up, what you want to free us from. And then what do you want to give us? What do you want to free us to? Lord, I pray that as you hear the prayers of your people rising to you in this very moment, 
you'd be answering their prayer in the power of the Holy Spirit. For we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.